Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Josip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello there, and welcome back again to another episode of Control Alt Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back here again with Josip Reune. What's up? Hey, Toby. Uh, big news here. I switched from Microsoft Edge to Firefox on all of my machines and devices. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, this is a big change for me. And, and the reason behind this is that I got this new tablet that you mentioned perhaps once in, in the show, the Samsung Galaxy Tab S7 Plus. So I, I figured this is the optimal device for me for reading. And, and it's great. But when I was setting that up during the Christmas break, uh, I did install Edge on it. And you want to sign in so that it will synchronize your history and whatnot. But it only accepted a Microsoft account, not a Corp account. And I think I use a Corp account on all of my other machines. So I had this disconnected thing here. And I was so frustrated with this, I figured, let me think of an alternative. And then I re re remembered we've had this chat on Firefox and a few other people. And I installed Firefox on the tablet first and the phone, then on, on, the, on the main PCs. And, and it's, it's great. It's a little bit different, especially since you don't have profiles. You have this uh, the container thing called multi-container containers. But once you sort of get the hang of it, it's, it's really, really good. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I've, I've used these containers in Firefox for a long time. So I use one for uh, my main corp account. I use one for, um, you know, whatever else uh, work accounts that I have, one for personal accounts and one for something else, specific customers, whatever. So whenever you need to jump into multiple teams or whatever, you can do this from the browser, from different containers in the same actual browser clients. So you don't need to have multiple windows open, just different tabs with different profiles. And this works really well. Uh, and you can color code the tabs, which is awesome. Yeah, one of the things that I really like is that I can uh, log in once with my Firefox account. And that takes all of my container settings to all of my other devices. As opposed to in Chrome and Edge, uh, the idea is that you have multiple accounts and you log in to each one of those. And then you get only those settings from those accounts. And I would often set up a new machine and then I realized, well, I have seven different accounts. So which ones were they and what were the passwords and what were the settings and is it an MSA or Azure AD or something else. And it took a lot of time to sort of manage this thing. And, and so far it, it feels like Firefox is a little bit more lightweight in that sense that I have one identity and it ties together with the containers. Sounds good. So, so life in 2021 is, is looking great already. So how about for you? So for me, it's all about packing boxes, a lot of packing boxes. So we're moving in a couple of weeks and we're busy trying to decide what to keep, what to put in storage and what to give away. And you kind of quickly realize how many things you collect over the years and how little time you actually spend with a lot of these things. And last couple of years, I've been trying to move into a more minimalistic approach to life. Uh, I've talked many times about going hiking and sleeping under the stars and all these things. You don't need a lot of things. You need an axe and a, you know, some fire steel and some kind of food and whatever to go out. And it's a great way of, of life. And I'm trying to bring this into my house as well because I don't have a lot of gadgets. Well, I, I collect over the years quite a few gadgets, but I don't buy a lot of new stuff now. 
uh, I have the same monitor for six or seven years, you know, the same laptop for a long time. I don't change my devices. I don't get a, new, a lot of new stuff anymore. I used to do that, but I'm trying to kind of go back to this minimalistic, get only what you need and give away everything else. And I try to give this away to people who need it, uh, especially since the pandemic last year, a lot of people have been suffering, uh, you know, both at work and their personal lives. And I kind of set up this uh, WhatsApp thread with a lot of people in the neighborhood where I know they, they've had a hard time with um, furloughs and, and losing their jobs and things like that. And, and I just open a kind of a yard sale for free. So I put a table outside of the house and anyone could come and pick things up that they needed, but I don't need anymore. And it's a great way because otherwise I would have to either sell everything online, which takes a lot of time, of course, or just go to the dumpster and throw everything. So was a lot better to see things get reused by people. And, and all of this, of course, now happens in combination with packing down the house uh, for the, the big move that we're doing in a couple of weeks. I remember reading perhaps a year ago about this sort of movement on minimal, minimalism that you have perhaps 50 or 100 items in your life. So you choose those, you get rid of everything else. And that would be super challenging to me, not because I have a lot of stuff, but well, perhaps... you have a hundred Lego cars just behind yeah, you. So. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I would need those and I, I would need a new tablet, of course, and my tea mug. One, and... one pair of underwear and hundred Lego cars and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of those cars, I think it's like 4,000 pieces. So I would, oh, yeah. I would really fail with this approach, <laughs> but I like the idea that, 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 that you clean up your life on, on things you don't really need. And, and when you move between houses, that's a great opportunity to. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it's, I'm trying to actively decide that I don't need more stuff. I can give this away. I can live a actually happier life without it. And, and so far that's true. Yeah, exactly. Alrighty, so today's episode is design your cloud solutions to handle transient faults. And I think we've done at least one episode that was perhaps about a year ago, where we sort of discussed a bit, not exactly this, but um, some of the design choices for cloud solutions. No, so now we look into transient faults. So what is it and, and, and why should I care? This is a good question. And I, I kind of want to talk about this uh, because like you just mentioned, we did another episode last year. Uh, where we talked about, you know, things developers need to think about when designing for the cloud and, and stuff like that. And one thing that keeps coming up, uh, coming up is transient faults. And like the word definition of that is lasting only for a short time uh, impermanently. So temporary, short-lived, short-term, uh, ephemeral, uh, you know. So a transient fault in your application is... For example, when you communicate with remote services, endpoints, and resources, they can cause errors. It can be errors that is uh, because of your application code is faulty. It can be errors outside of your control because you rely on infrastructure that you don't own, right? Uh, and they will happen in the cloud. There is no way around it. They will happen 100%. Uh, if you care about uptime, of course, and things running smoothly, then there will be Transient faults happening in your application code should support that. Um, and cloud apps are especially prone to this. So if you come from a uh, like a legacy developer model where you developed in-house, you ran it on your own servers or your own PC, you know, an application, you might not have experienced a lot of it. Uh, when you design cloud apps, um, you can get intermittent loss of network connectivity. 
This can be your fault. It can be outside of your control. And even if it's outside of your control, it's still your responsibility to understand that it can happen and have your application react on that. Uh, it can be temporarily unavailable services. So you send a REST API call to an endpoint and you get no reply or you get a, uh, a throttle reply or something else. Then you have to send the request again. And this is kind of the idea with um, handling these transient faults. And I think we talked about like specifically about throttle guidance and throttling as well in one of the episodes. And this kind of ties into that, uh, except it's not just about throttling. It's about any type of error that can happen intermittently, short-lived, short-term, uh, but they can happen when you least expect it. And, and this also ties into what we had a great episode that I thought was fun to talk about chaos engineering where you kind of expect the unexpected and you try to inject faults during development to ensure that your application can handle the unexpected, not just the expected uh, kind of things that you uh, design for, but the application need to gracefully kind of shut down or gracefully reboot or gracefully handle whatever is thrown uh, in the direction of the application. Uh, something else is of course timeouts due to very busy services or faults at the server, maybe the server and that you're connecting to is rebooting or having an IIS reset, as we said in the old days, uh, something is re recycling on that machine or in, in that service, that can happen and that does happen. But it's outside of your control. It's not your application that is faulty, but the application that you're calling might not be responding immediately. And then you need to retry that. You need to handle that, which then would be considered a transient fault. Uh, throttling limits, like we talked about, uh, I think in a couple of episodes, for example, I, both of us have a background in SharePoint and SharePoint online and know that if you send a lot of requests to SharePoint, which is just a cloud service these days, there's an API, you can send requests to it. If you send a lot of requests to it, you can get throttled because there's a lot of people, uh, at the same time sending requests. And in order to kind of accommodate for the cloud scale that they uh, serve you know across many customers and many users, they cannot give one user or one service, one application unlimited access to the APIs because then a single endpoint can kind of bring down the the uh, performance and application of SharePoint in this case for everyone else using it. So these can happen for various reasons. You know, transient faults they they can happen for actually very many reasons, and so I wouldn't recommend that you design your cloud solutions for a specific thing. Like if throttling happens, that's the only thing I care about. No, if you think about transient faults, throttling is a part of that. And then you're automatically thinking about that. So why do they happen? Well, resources in the cloud, they are often shared. So if you use a service, depending on the tier you're using, you share the hardware with other customers, right? So you get your service, you get a, your isolated data buckets and whatever in the cloud but the hardware being used is the same as other customers. It's just a server rack in a server farm somewhere, uh, whatever data center you picked. And throttling here can happen due to many customers having simultaneous requests to the servers. Uh, it doesn't have to be your fault, but the errors can still happen. So your application needs to handle it. And that's kind of the key point here. Don't design solutions from your own point of view only. If you deploy something to the cloud and you want high scale and high availability, you need to think about what can cause my application to not work properly, even if it's outside of my control. And, and they can happen, for example, to process existing requests, high demand services, they sometimes reject requests when it's spiking. 
And then you'll again need to have handling in your code for that. So if you, going back to the SharePoint Online example, you're hammering with a lot of requests, SharePoint Online starts replying, no, no, 429, you're throttled, you have to back off. Then you have to listen to that, take a step back and accept whatever parameters they're telling you to accept, back off for a while and then start trying again. So this is a very common thing that happens across most services in the cloud. And I think uh, the, the reasoning is, you know, to maintain performance for all users means that the service provider have to limit how they request data, uh, how, how you request data from them. So throttling guidance is uh, one of those things and resource quotas that you get. So think about it this way, that API keys with a credit quota exist for this reason, for example. So in API management that you have in Azure, there is a quota you can put on API key because otherwise a single user can send 500 million requests in one minute. And that may not be something that your service can handle. So either your service will go down or the user should be blocked or throttled or limited. And I vote for the second thing because your service shouldn't go down because someone is abusing it. Uh, so your code needs to handle that. And there's also hardware fault tolerance in the cloud, which is very high. Uh, however, like I mentioned before, if a server fails in the like the server farm or your big server pool, the hardware might need to be recycled and your application resources might be moved to other computing resources in the cloud. And when that happens mid-process, you may experience transient faults. Again, to no fault of your own, but the code needs to handle it. So I'm just going to reiterate that point many times over this uh, this recording because one of the things I see a lot when we discuss these things, and I've had a lot of questions about, you know, going into production with, a, um, for example, an Azure solution that they built, what do you need to think about? And this is one of the first things I, I mentioned. A lot of the times we see applications unexpectedly crashing or delivering the incorrect results because they're not actually working properly. And it can be hard to kind of detect that. Um, so again, think about it, design phase, think about how will you send requests and what happens if that request fails? That's the only thing. How you handle it will be very different depending on what kind of service you're communicating with. On, on, on this very same topic, I've, I've got a great example. We were talking at the beginning of this episode on packing boxes and getting rid of things. Uh, one of the things I did uh, during the Christmas break and in the Nordics, it's typically two to three weeks that businesses are not really super active. So you have time to do other things in life. So one of the things that I did is I figured I'll clean up my social media feeds. And for LinkedIn, what this means is that you need to unfollow perhaps those people or businesses that, that you feel, okay, it's not giving me any value. And once you go to LinkedIn and you start clicking on unfollow, there's, there seems to be this throttling built in that after you've done maybe five or 10, LinkedIn starts hiding people from you so that you wouldn't unfollow as many. <laughs> and it's interesting to see that there's this end user aspect to all of this as well, as well as the developer aspect of figuring out how do we do this if somebody wants to un unfollow, but we still need to serve them. But if something else happens uh, in between the user and our service. Yeah, that is interesting. Would be interesting to, to figure out how that you know works in, in the technical details. Yeah, I, uh, I figured there's there's perhaps uh, like some sort of a timeout that if I unfollow too many uh, within an hour, then then it puts me puts me in a, on a cooldown list. 
but I went back to the same view two days later and it still had most of my most of the connections that I follow were still hidden from me. So then it started giving me just one person at a time and you had to F5 the page, get a new one each time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, sorry, go ahead. No worries. Uh, so now we know how they happen and how do we solve these, these challenges in our applications? Yeah, I, I guess this is kind of the, the core dialogue of, of the transient faults because you understand now hopefully that they can happen. They can be within your control or outside of your control. And uh, I mentioned a lot of throttling. Uh, let me just also mention that it can also be network infrastructure, routers, load balancers, other things that increase the latency causing connection issues and you know other services just having a bad day. Um, so to answer the question, what kind of challenges uh, do we need to solve in our application then? Uh, well, number one is we need to detect faults when they occur because otherwise, of course, we cannot handle them. So um, you detect faults when they occur and then you determine if they are transient, if they are longer lasting or quite simply critical application crashes. And if here you see that this is a transient fault because you run the same code 10 times and it works eight out of 10 times, the code works, but it fails intermittently because it's depending on something that fails intermittently. That's a transient fault. So essentially, uh, this operation is suitable for a trying, or do we have um, a, a failed operation which fails to deliver value already at this point? So if you then figure out that this is an operation that we can retry because it works eight out of 10 times in this case, then we know that the fault is intermittent. Eight out of 10 times, my code works 100%. But those other 20% um, of the times I try to execute it, it fails because of some dependent service might not be responding properly. That's a transient fault and we need to handle it. Um, so number one is detect faults when they occur and kind of classify them. Is it a transient fault? Is it a permanent fault? Is it application um, bugs? Is it a critical application crash? Whatever it is, if it's a transient fault, you need to handle it. And of course, if it's a different fault or error as well, you also need to handle it, but specifically in this case, handle transient faults. Um, the number two thing you need to do is review the service guidelines. And this sounds really boring, but since we're talking about Azure, there is, um, actually, I will put that in the show notes. There are links to uh, retry guidance for different services in Azure. So you need to review the service guidelines of the dependent services that you're communicating with. So for example, a lot of Azure services, they have retry guidance documented in case something happens and you need to retry the request. So some SDKs have this built in, some do not. And if you're hammering REST APIs yourself, you need to kind of understand these limits and guidelines. Otherwise you might just get an error or just not get a response or the request might take a minute to fulfill or, or give your response instead of two milliseconds. Uh, so you need to understand those. And uh, so again, in the show notes, uh, we will put the link to uh, service guidelines for review guidance um, and, and retry guidance. Um, and number three is you need to follow retry guidance, right? So number two, if that is review the retry guidance to understand it, number three is follow retry guidance. So if the fault is transient, uh, then you need to follow the retry guidance and ensure that your application continues to operate and like send these subsequent requests 
that are successful. And the follow-up question to that, of course, is how many times do we retry? Well, that depends on the service and the service retry guidance and the uh, service guidelines in general. How many times can you retry? How many times can you actually send a request? How long do we need to wait between the retries? Do we immediately retry? Do we retry at regular intervals, for example, every two seconds? So I send a request, it fails. Do I wait two seconds and send it again? It fails, I wait two seconds and send it again. Uh, like a linear timeout, I would not recommend that because if it happens due to throttling or something like that, you need to exponentially back off instead. And there's something called an exponential backoff pattern. So look that up, implement that. A lot of the SDKs have just a setting saying, retry guidance, exponential backoff, tick, that's it. If there is not uh, no implementation in the SDK for that, then you have to build that yourself. So to tie that together, that, that's a lot of do's, but there's also some don'ts, uh, like kind of anti-patterns to avoid because um, I've stumbled on that myself and uh, banged my head against the wall over the years when I kind of built something that I couldn't figure out. And I figured out it was my own mistake in my application logic. So I kind of want to mention a couple of don'ts or anti-patterns. Um, and the one that hit me very hard is duplicate layers of retry code. All right. So now we know transient faults can happen. They can happen to your faults or outside of your control due to the faults of the service you're calling. Uh, the challenges that we need to solve is we need to detect them. We need to understand them. We need to know the service limits. We need to know um, and follow their try guidance. So we do that. And then we build retry guidance. Maybe we build our own logic for that because the SDK or API didn't have uh, built-in retry um, back off. So duplicate layers of retry code is a bad thing. So your service calls another service, which calls Azure table storage. Then you do not retry in all these layers as the total retries will be exponentially growing beyond any comp comprehensible guidance, right? So if you have duplicate layers of retry code, you, you retry everything in every layer, it's a very bad thing. So imagine all the layers would have four retry attempts and you fail in the final layer, it would retry four times, three times, a total of 12, 12 times, where the guidance would be perhaps only four as your final layer determined. And so I'm using very low numbers here. I've done this at scales and we're talking about hundreds of millions of requests. So we're not talking about four retries, maybe we're talking about 2000 retries uh, for something that fails at scale, scaled out with microservices. You have many instances, perhaps 50 containers running, distributed on 50 different nodes, hammering an API, doing things. And then you, you cannot retry in all these layers all the way up only to realize the fault happened at the base layer way down there. Then you don't retry all the way up. I did that when I built it the first time. So then I retried. In this case, it was not Azure table storage, but that, that is an example where it can also happen. So you send a request and it fails. And I try that five times and it still fails. Then I catch that exception and in, in the layer above in that service, and then I do retry in that service as well. Bad, bad, bad. This is an anti-pattern. You should not do that. Another thing that you should not do is immediate retries more than once. So again, immediate retries can only happen once. So if you fail and immediately retry, ergo no timeout, no back off. So you try, it fails, you try again. You can do that once, only do it once. Because uh, if it fails because of throttling and you try again, you're gonna be even more throttled. 
and try again. You're going to be even more throttled. So try immediately once maximum. I would still recommend not doing it immediately. Still have some kind of back off. Uh, but if you don't, do it once. This is important. Otherwise, you might, in the period of, of one second, you might send five requests because all of them fails and you're not waiting between the requests. Fail request, send again. Fail request, send again. Fail request, send again. The only thing the server is going to see that is accepting your request is request, request, request. And if it rejects it, it's going to then block you probably because you're hammering them. And that is an abuse of the service guidelines as well. So a bad thing. Another kind of anti-pattern is to use regular intervals. So do not use regular intervals for backing off unless absolutely necessary. So the real world here is services are healthier the longer you back off. Start with a very short time and then exponentially grow the timeout of the retry until it succeeds. Or if it never succeeds, well, then the timeout between the retries will be so long that the service at least doesn't suffer. And this is our responsibility to ensure that we can do that. Um, and the final thing that I also learned, which is a, a big no-no uh, or, or a big consideration is to get your distributed uh, applications in order. And I mentioned as an example, we had 50 containers, sometimes 250 containers doing quite intense work, all of them hammering different APIs at the same time. So if you have multiple instances of the same client or it's the same kind of code um, in your microservice setup, ensure that retry guidance can be communicated between them, right? So you have different components, individual components, but they still need to communicate depending on what services they're hammering. So it's the, the same kind of service, just distributed horizontally over many nodes, they will hammer the same endpoint. If that endpoint replies to one of your services saying, no, you're throttled now, or no, you're getting blocked, or you're abusing us, then the 59 other containers should not continue to hammer because they will, of course, also be blocked and then you will be on the blacklist. So that's not good uh, if you get banned or on the banned list. So this is also super important. Ensure that the uh, retry guidance can be communi communicated between them and do not execute retries from all these distributed workers at the same time because that obviously doesn't indicate that you've waited and backed off, uh, but instead only one of your instances is waiting and backing off where all of the others are still hammering. So some food for thoughts, if you're in this space, if you're designing cloud solutions, if you're building distributed cloud solutions, ensure that your applications can handle these transient faults. Uh, I know we didn't talk technical details or what line of code to, uh, to do the retry on here, because this applies to all the services you build uh, in the cloud, right? Not just Azure, of course, whatever service you're calling. If you're calling something outside of Azure, same thing implement retry guidance. If there is no built-in support in the SDKs, you need to build it yourself. You need to understand this. Of course, if you're building a proof of concept for something or a super small application that will only run 10 times in a day, might not make sense. But if you deploy something that is going to run in production with enterprise customers or in your own organization or something that will be for consumers and you have huge scale, a lot of requests, a lot of users, um, you need to think about it. There is no way around it, and think about it early. So I'm I'm picking on the um, on the distributed applications and especially on the retry guidance. So what would be then a proper approach here? So if if one of your workers uh, gets blocked or there's a transient fault, uh, is it up to that specific worker 
to distribute that information to all of your other containers, for example, or shall you then um, have some sort of an update elsewhere that everybody else looks up to and says, okay, we can see there's, there, there was a transient fault here. So perhaps we'll also do this retry guidance based on that one finding. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a very good question. And the way we had to do it, um, because we did a lot of research around this, and this is very different, of course, depending on the service you're communicating with, but what we ended up with is having a communication layer either in Azure queues or Azure table storage. And there you can have a table with a log of transient faults, or in our case, we had a log of throttling. Every time one of the instances uh, were throttled, immediately we added a log entry saying, we have been throttled in instance 42 uh, right now. And whenever a new instance is booting up to do, you know, to do the hammering to the APIs, the very first thing he does is open that table in Azure Storage and see, have we been throttled in the last whatever retry guidance is? Two minutes, five minutes, whatever. If you have been throttled within the last maybe one minute, do not execute the request. Then you wait for at least whatever amount of seconds, then you can try uh, this way, all these workers, no matter if we had one or 1,000 of them, they all got the same message. So we got throttled in one of the instances. We add this central message that all of these workers can read. And whenever they're picking up new jobs, they can see, okay, we were recently throttled in instance 39 this time. Uh, that happened two seconds ago. That means none of us can actually send requests right now because the service is already suffering. If we continue to do that, we might be blocked. And this actually happened. So we did send a lot of requests. And then we had uh, spokespersons in, in Azure reaching out from their uh, abuse team saying, you're abusing the Azure services in terms and conditions. <laughs> We're like, whoops, we did not intend to do that. Apologies. And this is kind of where I realized, back to my first anti-pattern, don't use duplicate layers of your tricode. So I had these distributed workers. I already thought about it. So we're getting throttled, let's add this message, great. But since I did my retries all the way up in all my layers, I never actually waited um, and looked into that table. I never got to that point because I just kept hammering. So so the team at Microsoft from, from these, this specific service reached out and say, said, you are actually abusing uh, and using brute force attacks on our systems. You need to stop that or we will just delete all your resources and suspend your subscription. Uh, which would be suboptimal for business. Um, so again, super important to think about, um, especially if you do things at scale, you can do it at the scale where the rest of the cloud is suffering and this is a bad thing. So I'd say the, the final thing to think about, of course, is some great tips about monitoring your transient faults is you know, log them as warnings, not errors. A transient fault is not an error in itself. It's, it's a warning you need to be aware of. And then you can later drill down into these logs to see if you uh, can determine the patterns when they happen. Going back to SharePoint Online and the API there, for example, with many of the customers that I've worked and, and, and ran uh, code against the APIs, I see that uh, on Mondays and Wednesdays at 8 p.m. my time, we get throttled almost every week because that's the time they start working. That's they are in a different time zone. And that's when all of their staff, maybe 50,000 users are starting to use their, their internet. And if at the same time I execute all these thousands of requests per minute, 
you know, that's going to fail. So the only way to understand that was to log this as warnings, not as errors, and then drill down into these logs and visualize it. So I could see over a month, how does it happen? Well, it happens every Monday, every Wednesday, starts around 8 p.m. and lasts for about eight hours, which is their business hours. And then it stops. And that was an easy decision then. We could say uh, we had a ban list of hours when we could not execute requests or where we had to scale down the requests. So between 8 p.m. on Mondays and Wednesdays, we went down to 25% capacity. All the problems went away. So these are things that might be interesting to think about. It's not as easy as build a service, right-click deploy, you're in the cloud, happy times. If you do big applications, cloud scale, if you're architecting something that is a component of a bigger picture, these things need to play well together. And you can also have telemetry alerts. So when the number of failures go above a certain point, it may indicate that the service is suffering or that our logic is still too aggressive. So here we can also then make decisions to implement different patterns or when we back off, we back off more. Or when this happens, we can reduce the capacity at which we're running. So again, maybe backing down to 75% or 50%, whatever. Um, and the only way to make uh, good data-driven decisions here is if you have the telemetry. And that's up to you and your application to log. Nobody else will do that for you. Um, and then, of course, determine how to handle continuous failures. So if they do not heal because you're backing off, you do log an exception. Uh, do you send a notification? What do you do? Right? Because just monitoring and logging it, it's great. But if you don't take action, it's not great. So there are decisions you need to kind of make along the way here. And I think I, with that, exhausted most of the ideas I have from the top of my head, at least, with transient faults. Uh, if you're listening in and you have other experiences or something you'd, you'd like to share, then you know, don't be a stranger. Reach out to us on Twitter uh, or email, and we'd be happy to bring that up in a new episode as well. This was a lot of great ideas. I, I really need to pick this up, uh, especially because often you start building something and, and you might realize this is not going to be a big thing now, but perhaps later on, I might need to add this sort of uh, wisdom in the code also to figure out that, okay, now it's becoming more crucial, more important for things. And it's not the same as when I got started with this one, but perhaps six months later, too many people are using it. And now I need to implement these sort of uh, capabilities into it. Yeah, it's very, very common that you move from a dev or test project or a proof of concept into production. Unfortunately, it is more common than I would like for it to be. Uh, oftentimes you do a proof of concept and then you should go back to the drawing table and say, well, this works very well. We already have the proof of concept. Now let's elaborate it and make it production ready. Unfortunately, in the real world where there are budgets, there are timelines, there are constraints, um, you know, it's not a green field where you have unlimited resources of everything. A lot of the time you move from proof of concept to production. You might move it from different subscriptions, but the application or logic might remain the same. So absolutely on point with what you said, you might start small um, and then you might not have to do this. But if at some point you decide this needs to be long running, for a long time, supporting a great deal of requests, and it should just work. It's not going to work unless you think about these things long-term. So Indeed. good points. Good stuff. And again, thank you for tuning in and until next time. All right. See you then. 
thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.